Welcome to the January 12th episode of Enjoying the Bible Podcast. Hi, I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. And my desire for this podcast is to help you understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The reading for today is Genesis chapter 29 and 30, and then Matthew chapter 9. Once again, that's Genesis 29 through 30 and Matthew chapter 9. I hope you're ready. Let's get started. Okay, as we get to Genesis chapter 29, uh, Jacob finds his wife, or we should say wives, and uh, God's promise is beginning to be fulfilled as uh, there's a competition between Jacob's wives uh, for who can apparently win his heart by having the most kids. So let's go back and just look at a couple of things here. One, as I mentioned, Jacob's wives, plural. Now, one of the things that is so clear in God's uh, order, God's design, even before the formal law was given, was that God made one man and one woman and brought them together uh, in marriage. They were the two of them, they became one, and that was the norm, that was to be the norm. One man, one woman for life. Uh, And in fact, as you read throughout the Old Testament, you read throughout the New Testament, it becomes very clear that this is God's definition of marriage. One man, one woman for life. And yet, we've got the thorny issue of some of the uh, people of the faith, the men of the faith in the Old Testament, who were marrying more than one woman. This is uh, one of the points that I have brought up previously. I just want to reiterate it, and that's this that when the Bible gives us the story of something, for instance, Genesis 29 gives us the story of Jacob who uh, serves seven years to obtain Rachel, but then uh, he gets drunk and his uh, new father-in-law, Laban, uh, instead gives him Leah on their wedding night, and then he wakes up from his drunken stupor the next morning and realizes that he married the wrong woman, and so then he volunteers, uh, well, he he gets angry, and then, um, you know, then works a deal out with Laban to marry Rachel as well. When we look at this, the Bible is the inspired Word of God. It is without error. And so what we understand that to mean when it's giving us stories is that this is the way it happened. That's what we understand it to mean. When God's Word is without error, it means in the stories that God is telling us how it happened. But what it does not mean is that what happened is moral, that what happened was pleasing to the Lord. I just want us that when we're reading stories, I want us to put our thinking caps on and say, okay, the Bible tells it the way that it happened, but is what happened good? Is it righteous? Is it holy? Does it move me more into the, the, uh, the image of Christ as New Testament saints? We're asking those questions. And so certainly this whole thing of Jacob having more than one wife, that was not right. It was not good. And yet we see out of mankind's sinfulness, and all of us are sinners, God continues to fulfill his promises and work out his plan 
in spite of man's sinfulness. So I just want you to uh, look at that point and consider that point as we uh, come to this time where Abraham had one wife and then when Sarah died, he had Keturah. And then Isaac had one wife, it was Rebekah. But then we get to Jacob and he's marrying more than one wife. Um, it, the Bible does not condone this. It simply tells us what happened. But even out of this sin, God was working out his promise. I tell you, that's comforting to me because even though I've got one wife and will only have one wife uh, with Kim, uh, in Kim, um, the fact is, is that I struggle in other areas of my heart and of my mind and, you know, with words that I say sometimes that are that are cutting or uh, not encouraging and kind or whatever else. I mean, various sins I have to ask God to forgive me of and sometimes have to ask others. But one of the things that I see in Genesis 29 is that just out of, out of a life of sin, God still is working out his plan. I realize that there's nothing that I can do to mess up God's sovereign plan. Um, that doesn't excuse sinfulness. It does not excuse that. But it does mean that we serve a God who is so powerful that regardless of what we do, he is still working out his plan. All right, so now that we're looking at Genesis 30, it's pretty self-explanatory. Um, what we see in verses 1 through 24 basically is kids, kids, and more kids. I mean, God's promise of Abraham, if you look up into the sky and if you can count the stars, then you will be able to count your descendants. Well, that is coming true as this competition between competing jealous wives is going on. Um, then we read in verses 25 through 26 that Jacob is ready to go back home. And by home, I mean go back to the promised land, go back to the land where his mom and dad and Esau is living. Uh, it's been 14 years or so uh, by this point. And then in verses 27 through 43, uh, we realize that Laban, who was just as manipulative and just as deceptive as, as Jacob is, I mean, both of these guys, Jacob and Laban, pretty much were made of the same cloth. Um, Laban was able to uh, talk Jacob into staying uh, six more years uh, to work rightfully uh, for his own wealth, but Laban could not have anticipated that as La Jacob was rightfully working for Laban, that God would be blessing Jacob and Laban would become incredibly jealous. And friend, this is another lesson that if you are living in favor with God, it does not guarantee um, it does not guarantee financial blessing. It means that you will be blessed, but God's going to determine how that blessing happens. It may just be um, the blessing may be something so spectacular as your walk with the Lord and your experience of His presence and presence and your enjoyment of Him and your life becomes greater and more intense. Maybe that is the blessing, and that's the greatest of all blessings. But it could be that there are other blessings that God sends your way. Um, I just want you to know that oftentimes as God blesses us, there are going to be occasions when 
God's blessings to us are not the joy that we have at God blessing us is not shared by others. And in fact, if they are not being blessed by the Lord in the same way that we are, jealousy will come in and it can cause all sorts of relationship problems. And so a lot of times I've discovered in my own life that when the Lord blesses you, just share it between you and the Lord. Express your gratitude to Him. Because a lot of times when we share it with others, it is not met with the same amount of joy. And don't let a jealous person or jealous people throw water on your joy by, you know, Jesus said in Matthew, was it Matthew 6, Matthew Matthew 7 actually, he said, don't cast your pearls before swine. We just recently looked at that. What that means is the things of value, your pearls, don't throw it to those who are just going to trample on it and not treat it as something of value. And so that principle, don't cast your pearls before swine, I think it also applies. We're not calling people pigs. It's a principle. But what Jesus was meaning by that is there are times whenever something that is precious to you needs to not be shared with others because they will not value it as you value it. Okay, so let's come to the last chapter that we'll look at uh, for today, and this is Matthew chapter 9. Um, this has got quite a bit of stuff in it, so I will try to use an economy of words uh, as we go through this. First is I want us to look at verses 1 through 8, the healing of the paralyzed man, the healing of the man who was paralyzed. And there's one thing in particular that I want us to see. Uh, Jesus, when he looked at this man who was paralyzed, who was brought to him, Jesus said in verse 2, Have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And so Jesus initially did not heal the man of his paralysis. He did forgive his sins. Why? Because Jesus looked at him and saw his faith. Verse 2, seeing his faith, Jesus told the paralytic, have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. That's what it takes to have sins that are forgiven. That's what it takes to be saved is faith. You are saved by grace through faith. And so this is salvation. But we realize in verse 3, the very next verse, at this, some of the scribes, which were the religious lawyers at that time, some of the scribes said to themselves, he's blaspheming. What was the blasphemy? They were saying only God has the ability to forgive sins. Well, Jesus is God, and so he had the ability to forgive sins. But listen to what he says, verse 4. Perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, Why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? So Jesus looks at him and says, Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to, or to say, Get up and walk? Now they would say, The scribes would say, Get up and walk. Because to say your sins are forgiven, there's nothing tangible, there's nothing objective that can prove that sins have actually been forgiven. For all they knew, when Jesus said your sins are forgiven, those were just empty words. And so that, in their mind, was easy. Forgiving sins and using, you know, just saying those words to them, that was the easy thing. The hard thing to the scribes was something that would necessitate visible proof that Jesus' words had power. And the hard thing for the scribes would be to say, get up and walk, because then the proof is in the pudding. Is the guy going to get up and walk? So to them, the hard thing was to say, get up and walk. But honestly, what was, uh, what was the harder thing? To heal a man, to heal a man's body, or to forgive his sins? Honestly, the harder thing 
was to forgive his sins because that would require Jesus eventually here in just a few years to go to the cross and to experience God's wrath, to experience God's rejection as Jesus wore the guilt of our sin and died on the cross as the payment for every single person who will trust in him. But that's what's going on. Jesus asked the question, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? They thought the harder thing was to get him to get up and walk. Really, the harder thing was to forgive sins. But then in verse 6, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say, get up off uh, get up off of your stretcher, take your stretcher, and go home. And so Jesus healed the man as proof that he could do what was harder in the scribes' minds so that he could say, I can do what you think is easier, I can forgive sin. But we understand forgiving sin was harder. Okay, so uh, we also get to um, verses 9 through 13 where Jesus calls Matthew, Jesus calls Matthew, Matthew the tax collector. Now, we do not understand this at all because we don't live in the first century, but honestly, when you look at the people that Jesus was calling, he was calling people that you would not have selected if you wanted to create a movement that would change the world, that would take the world by storm. Jesus didn't go to those who had been religiously educated. He went to common fishermen, blue-collar workers who had not been formally religiously educated. He went to a tax collector who was despised by his... He was hated by his fellow Jewish countrymen. He was seen as a traitor. And also, he was in a, a business that was known for exploitation to take much more than uh, was required from his Jewish brothers and sisters and then to pocket the difference between what he would give to Rome and uh, what he actually collected. And so Jesus was gathering around himself a motley crew. He was gathering a group of people that only he would have selected. Uh, but they had Jesus in common, and the Holy Spirit would come down in Acts 2 and would fill them, Acts 1, and then in Acts 2, they would begin taking the world by storm. Uh, if you look at verses 12 through 13, uh, Jesus is talking uh, to uh, the Pharisees who were uh, rebuking him for hanging out with sinners, which is who Jesus felt comfortable with. Not because he was a sinner, he was not, but he loved reaching out to those people who were in sin, who were just right there on the edge of experiencing conviction. They were realizing that their sin was not satisfying their heart's longing. And so he was comfortable with them because then he would convey the truth to them and then they would reject their sin and follow him. But Jesus says in verses 12 and 13, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Well, we understand that. If, if you're doing well, you're not going to go to the doctor. If you're sick, that's when you go to the doctor. That makes sense. Verse 13, Jesus said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. What's Jesus saying? Is he saying that the Pharisees are righteous? No. He is saying that the Pharisees think they're righteous. They don't think they're sick. They don't think they have a problem. Therefore, Jesus, to them, is irrelevant. And he didn't come for people like that. 
Jesus came for people who know they're sick, who know they're messed up, who know that what they are doing and what they are experiencing is not satisfying their inner longing. That's the people that Jesus is coming to. And friend, I'm telling you that we as a church of the living God uh, across this nation and around the world, we could learn from this because quite often Christians are known for being attracted to those who uh, seem as if they've got everything together or at least they hide the bad things so that everybody looks good and everybody looks great and holy. But then if a drunk comes into our midst or a prostitute comes into our midst or somebody who's a druggie or someone who's been broken by all sorts of just choices on their part, Churches are seen to be judgmental. Christians are seen to be judgmental and critical and looking down our nose at people like that when those are the very people that Jesus was drawn to. Jesus was drawn to them not so that they could stay in their sin, but so that he could reach out to them and pull them to himself. Friends, I'm telling you that as Christians, a lot of times we are drawn to people that Jesus generally was not drawn to. We could certainly learn from him. In verses 14 through 17, we see fasting being talked about. It's not talked about a lot today, but it was talked about in the New Testament. Um, And fasting is simply going without food for a set time for spiritual purposes, for spiritual renewal. There's a lot to be said about fasting in the scriptures. I would just encourage you, investigate that and then pray as to whether or not God would have you to go on a fast. In verses 23 through 26, we see that Jesus raised someone from the dead. Just as a point of trivia, uh, there were three people that Jesus raised from the dead Uh, during his ministry. This is one of the three. In verse 28, um, we see Jesus who is healing someone based upon their faith. In verse 28 of this chapter, uh, Jesus uh, looks at someone and says, Do you believe that I can do this? And they said, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes and said, Let it be done to you according to your faith. Once again, I want to let you know there is... There is no inherent power in faith. At least biblically speaking, there is no inherent power in faith. This is not what Jesus is saying. He is not saying, hey, according to your faith, if you believe hard enough, then according to your faith, let let you be healed. That's, that's That's not what he's doing. In fact, it doesn't take much faith at all to move a mountain. Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, the smallest seed at that time that was known at that time, that's the smallest seed. He said, if you have faith like this, you can move a mountain. So it's not the size of faith that matters. It's what that faith is resting in. Do you believe I can do this? See, that's what faith is. Faith, there's no power in faith. There's power in the one who our faith rests upon, right? The power is in Jesus. And so our faith is simply an act of trust, but we need to make sure that the object that we have faith in, that we trust in, is worthy of our faith. That's the power. The power is not in our faith. The power is in Jesus. Our faith simply rests in Him, and therefore our faith is good, and it can produce things, but it's not the faith. It's what our faith is resting in. 
And friend, I'm telling you that uh, regarding our faith, and it's not just saving faith, it's faith that we have every single day. We ought to live resting in and trusting in who Jesus is and what he has said. So when we get to verse 36, I just want to highlight that verse, verse 36. We understand that God in the flesh, and Jesus shows us who the fa- what the Father is like. So when we see Jesus behaving a certain way, we know that God is behaving that way. God feels that. When we see verse 36, we see where it says that when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them. Friend, I want you to know that God is not stoic. He is not in heaven looking down at us without emotion. I want you to know that God in the flesh, the Son of God, Jesus, had compassion for people. And I want you to know that God doesn't just love you stoically. He has compassion for you. And nothing can separate you from the love of God. Then we get to verses 37 and 38 where Jesus looks and says, Hey, there's a lot of things that need to be done. People are hurting. People need to be saved. They not only need to be saved from their sins, but there are people who are caught up in the consequences of sins that need to be saved and need to be helped, and there need to be laborers. Do not read Jesus' words in verses 37 and 38 and think he is saying, pray for preachers, pray for missionaries. That's not what he's saying. There's words that were used for that. Jesus could have used those words, but he didn't. He said, pray for laborers. Who are the laborers? Friend, that's you and me. That's you and me. And so when we are praying for laborers to go out into the harvest, to share the gospel, to deal with sin, but also to help people who are stuck in the consequences of sin, we're praying also for ourselves. And we need to be open every single day to speak truth And not only to speak truth, but to look for ways to help tangibly in people's lives, to help them, to draw them closer to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you, and uh, Lord, we do pray for the harvest. We pray that you would send laborers into the harvest. We pray that you would send us and... We pray for you to send not only others, but also for you to call others, call people who are already saved to realize that there is a harvest and that they are to be involved in reaching out to the harvest. Lord, help us to be ready at any moment to share the wonderful, life-changing, eternity-altering message of the gospel with people. But Lord, also help us as we are prepared to share the gospel to also have hearts of compassion like you do, Lord Jesus, to help people that are stuck in the consequences of sin. Help us not to stand back in judgment and say that they are the ones who got themselves into into their circumstances because of their choices. Lord, every single one you helped, just most of the people that you helped were, were just like that. The woman at the well, she made her choices that got her to that situation. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to stand in judgment, but to realize that if it were not for your grace, we could be that. But help us, Lord, with a conscious awareness of our own sin and your forgiveness of our sin and your grace helping us to break strongholds in our own life to share that message and to reach out and get our hands dirty by helping other people and draw them to your goodness and your glory and your grace. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've come to the end of another podcast, and I sure hope that this is proving to be helpful and beneficial and encouraging to you. Uh, This is my desire. So I'm glad that we've uh, been able to spend this time together today. If you want to, you can hop on over to the Facebook group page and uh, post some comments. I love reading every one of them. So we'll look forward to meeting with you tomorrow. We'll talk to you then. Bye-bye.